With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, this is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Uh, I'm Gareth Roberts. And tonight we're doing a bit of a special on safe standing. Uh, We've had some news this week in that Shrewsbury Town have applied to be the first club in England to have a safe standing section. We've also, a few days ago, had West Bromwich Albion saying they're willing to use the Hawthorns as part of a pilot scheme for safe standing, should that be allowed in the Premier League. And all of this also follows you know, Celtic introducing a, a safe standing section this season as well, which has been a huge success. So to have a chat about all that, uh, I've got John Darsh on the phone, who's a leading safe standing campaigner, uh, has been involved for for several years now, along with, alongside the Football Supporters Federation in pushing for this and pushing for people to recognise that safe standing should be discussed and I'm really that it's it's a much safer option as as it suggests than than standing behind seats which is what we normally have I mean I think it's worth saying right at the top of the show that you know I've I've got a season ticket on the cop and I, I, and on numerous occasions I've stood for 90 minutes watched a game of football and those circumstances aren't safe it's quite easy to fall forwards fall backwards it's not safe for young children and all the rest of it what safe standing is proposing is a system a rail seating system where you, you have a defined space to stand in with, with bars in front here and bars at the back here. You can't fall forward and you can't fall back. So, John, uh, big progression this week, really, a big week for this campaign. Um, it, it's been excellent news, hasn't it? Yeah, hi, yeah, it was it was really good news. I mean, you might think, you know, Shrewsbury Town, quite a small club, the number of seats are looking at putting in only 500 or so. You might think that's small fry, but actually in the... In the context of the whole um, safe standing campaign, it's a major step forward. You know, it's the first time ever that a club with an all-seater ground has gone to the relevant national safety authority, the sports ground safety authority, and said, you know, we would like permission to accommodate our fans who stand in a safer way than we're able to at the moment, and in order to do that, to install rail seats, and hopefully they will get the green light, and that will go ahead, and they will become the first club ever in England or Wales to install rail seats after, as you said, in Scotland, Celtic did it last summer. I mean, it's it, it's been about education this campaign, hasn't it, John? Because I think I think what's important when when people hear the phrase "standing at football games," they automatically will think back to the Hillswood disaster, to to various other disasters, and, and they associate standing and eighties terraces and being caged in with what's being proposed now. And, and what we're talking about now is an absolute world away from that, isn't it, John? Yeah, I mean, I think four, five, six years ago, the association. Certainly in, in the press, you know, if they did a story in a newspaper about, um, you know, fans want safe standing, that they'd, they'd always uh, illustrate that with a picture of, of a great big black and white 70s, 80s terrace, you know, the cop, the Stretford end, wherever it might be, that illustrate it with pictures of Hillsborough. Um, and, you know, as you said, it's a, what we're talking about is a mile away from, from those old swaying huge terraces, some of them in very bad state repair, crumbling, and, of course, with the great big fences at the front that they used to have in, in that era. What we're talking about now is, is just to imagine that the stands we have currently with normal seats in and think of part of those stands, you know, one, one stand behind the goal perhaps, or even just part of a stand behind the goal, instead of having normal seats, having seats, as you described, with the rail in so you can't fall forward and you can't have somebody from behind falling forward onto you. Exactly what they've got now in Celtic, which I know lots of people have seen on the videos, you know, where it's not just young lads, it, it, it's mums and dads, it's Kids, not, not tiny kids, because they're, of course, you know, a bit short, but kids in there, 11, 12, 13-year-old kids I've seen in there with mums and dads, you know, able to stand up, cheer, sing for 90 minutes, get, get very excited by a goal, jump, jump around, but not fall over. So it's much, much safer than what we have currently, and that's a million miles away, as you say, from what we used to have in the 70s and 80s. And I think it's important to say as well, John, that, you know, standard has been a part of football culture for a very long time and remains so. And, you know, as I said, you know, it's not just at Anfield, at, at Premier League grounds, at Championship grounds, people stand up for 90 minutes in seating sections anyway, particularly in away sections yeah. as well. It, it, it just sort of seems a, a natural way when people want to sort of support the team, when they want to sing and shout. People people like to stand. And, 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 it's, and if they're watching... It's, watch just, it, if it's they're, not just a matter of liking to stand. I, I often say to people, uh, you know, think about opera singers, sing about... 
think about church congregations, think about pop singers, you know, everybody pretty much, you know, unless you're Val Dunican, which if, if you want to sing well and through your diaphragm and get the air going up for your lungs, you need to stand up. You can't yeah. sing your heart out for the lads if you're cramped down in a cracked position on a seat. So it is the natural position uh, in which to sing, you know, and the, the football authorities, the Premier League, you know, what they sell around the world you know, is supposedly the atmosphere in their stadia. And I think one of the reasons actually that their view is changing slightly or has been changing slightly over the last six months is because I believe, you know, some of their broadcast clients are saying to them, hey, this product you're selling to us, it's supposed to be a fantastic atmosphere. The reality is the atmosphere in some of your grounds, at some of your games, is actually not that good. And I think we've seen the very fact that the Premier League brought in this new rule a while back to say um, at least some of the away fans in the future have got to be at pitch side and that they agreed to the £30 ticket cap. It's all to do with atmosphere. You know, they want to make sure they've got a good atmosphere in their ground. And I think, as I said, that's why their view at the executive team at the Premier League, I think, is changing slightly. They realise that, you know, the atmosphere that they're selling around the world as a TV product is not as good as it could be. And on the other side of the coin, you've got the stadium safety guys saying, well, actually, you know, we'd like to make it safer for our fans who stand up. Another thing you mentioned, the way fans, we sometimes get criticised that the, the idea of um, having standing areas would in some way make the game less um, inclusive and, and the diversity of the, of the spectator demographic would change. You know, um, you know women, kids uh, and whatever wouldn't come anymore. Well, actually, at the moment, it's not, it's not very inclusive for a way fan. You know, if you're an old guy with dodgy knees who can't stand for 90 minutes or you're short or you're a young kid, you simply can't go to away games. Of most Premier League clubs, because as you said, the entire away following stands up. Now, if for those away sections of those grounds you wanted to go to, there was a choice of a standing area or a seated area, then the old guys with dodgy knees, the, the short people, the people with, with young kids, they could all go, and they would know they're going to be sat down amongst like-minded uh, spectators who want to watch the game sat down, apart from when the team scores a goal. Whereas everybody who wanted to stand could get a ticket for the safe standing area. They're going to be able to stand there amongst like-minded friends without any stewards giving them grief. And if they go absolutely wild when their team scores a goal, they're not going to fall over. But everybody wins. Yeah, and, and, and that choice is absolutely vital to this conversation, I think, John, and any conversation around safe standing. That, that's what we want. That's what, that, if, if you support other support, sports, if you go and watch those sports live, you have the option, you have the choice. And it, it, it's back to a thing where football fans are treated di- differently for some reason by... But you know, by decision makers, by by the, by the government, by the clubs themselves, and you know, we, we don't want to be treated differently. We'd love to have this choice, as you say. You know, I, I can go on the car, and there will be people who who will say to other people, well, "Stand up, get behind the lads," and then there'll be other people who say, "Sit down, you're in my way." You know, yeah. and when you've got a defined safe standing section of a ground like you've got at Celtic, everyone's the, everyone who's in that section is like minded. They want they're there to sing and shout, they're there to create colour and noise, and they're there to stand up to do so. So the, those arguments are taken away, and as you say, people are actually offered offered the choice. And yeah. I, I, I think it's vital, you know, that's vital. I mean, I, I wrote something on it this week, John, and, and one of the things I said in that article is that you know we hear all the time from football clubs that. You know, we're customers, and we don't like being described as customers. We like to think of ourselves as supporters. But if we are customers, well, surely the club should be engaging with us. And I think this this, this is particularly the case for Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool at, at the moment, it's, it, it's always a flat no about safe standing. There's no discussion. There's no survey. They haven't asked match going fans what their views are. It's simply, it's a flat no, and it seems that that, you know, that, that viewpoint is taken from the viewpoint of the top end of the, the Hillsborough Family Support Group, Margaret Aspinall, Trevor Hicks. And while, while I think everybody you know, on Merseyside is respectful of their views, at the same time they would say, well, you know, how often do Margaret and Trevor go, to, go home and away watching Liverpool? How often are they in the cop? You know, did, they, did they understand the culture of watching Liverpool in 2017? And as respectful as I am to their opinions... I would say no. And, you know, I think it's important to say as well that Spirit of Shankly have been talking about this and on Monday they will be putting a vote to their members on safe standing uh, with, with the results hopefully by the, the the end of July. I mean, that's going to be another another step in the right direction, hopefully, John. And at some point Liverpool are going to have to talk about this, aren't they? I think, that, I think there's, a, there's a swell of opinion now which deserves respect from the club 
and and at the moment it's just being shut down. But I'm, and we're looking around the country. We're seeing what's happening at Shrewsbury. We're seeing what's happening at West Brom in terms of them putting their hand up and saying we'd like to do this. And we'll, we, you know, there's a swell of fans there who go to Anfield every week or every other week, and they're wondering, well, why why can't it be Liverpool, and why aren't we having this conversation? Yeah, and I think you know it's the, the West Brom thing. They're the one that done it publicly. There's quite a lot of other uh, Premier League clubs, so I think it replied to that questionnaire from from the league executive in a very positive way. So there's lots of clubs saying, yes, actually we're interested in this, and we'd also be happy to be a, a, a pilot ground. And I think you're right. Yeah, you know, we do, we hate the word customer, but ultimately we are customers, and you would think that any business would listen to its customers and take on board their feedback. And and you're also right that of course you've got to have great respect for the, for the the fight that the, the likes of Margaret and Trevor have put up uh, with all the other family members over the last years. But also, you have to see that the, one of the great legacies, or the great legacy perhaps, of, of Hillsborough is that our stadia are much, much safer than they used to be. And that's not yeah. because they're all seated. That's because of the, the admission control techniques, the stewarding techniques, the policing techniques, all sorts of the things. I mean, uh, Taylor made about 60, 65 uh, recommendations. Only four of those were to do with standing. One of his... Unintended, one of the unintended consequences of all his uh, recommendations, though, was that we now have, as we've talked about, people standing behind lower back seats. And surely, you know, Margaret, Trevor, Liverpool Football Club, everybody with an interest in football must want spectators at a game to be as safe as they possibly can be. And given that we all know that large numbers of fans like to stand and do stand, and we don't want to demonise them and make them into, into you know, bad people, let's do quite the opposite. Let's make sure that they're embraced, they're valued, they're appreciated, and they're accommodated in the safest possible way. And that is behind a rail seat. And, you know, on, on Hillsborough as well, John, I mean, obviously some some big news this week that, you know, for, for very good reason we won't be commenting on. But, you know, I think what we can say and what we, we are safe to say is that, you know, Hillsborough was not caused by standing. It, it, was, it was crowd management, wasn't it, John? Yeah, I mean, that, that's been clear, you know, from the days of the Taylor Report. It was made, you know, clear to a new generation of, of fans by the independent panel report, and it was made clear, you know, once again last, last spring by the outcome of the inquest. So, yeah, you know, it is now proven in law, you know, that, that the reasons for the, for the disaster, you know, was a lack of uh, a failure of crowd management at the point of entry. And unfortunately, that's what causes um, disasters at large public assemblies all over the world. It's not to do with the nature of the venue towards which the crowd is moving. It's how they are managed, almost invariably, at the point of entry. I mean, there was a disaster in 2001 in South Africa, Ellis Park Stadium. 43 people, I believe, lost their lives. And if you read the the judge's report into what happened there, the the reasons are almost exactly the same as the Taylor report. You know, it was uh, the the police and the stewards charged with, with a duty of care to spectators at the point of entry, you know, failing to exercise that duty. And as a result, the, the people fell over, there was a bit of a stampede, and 43 people lost their lives. That stadium was and is an all-seater ground. So it wasn't because they were going towards a seated area, as at Hillsborough, it wasn't because they were going towards a standing area that the disaster happened. It was because the people charged with the duty of care of making sure they were able to enter that stadium safely failed. On the question of the law, you mentioned the law there, John, and, you know, the law at the moment states that, you know, teams in the top two divisions in England have to be able, have to play in front in, in, in all-seater stadia. I've heard people talking about there being sort of grey areas here and about, you know, because when we, when we have the safe standing discussion, it seems to be that we need to overturn this legislation. And yet other people say, well, actually, if you're proposing a rail seating section... Do you have to overturn this legislation? And, and there are grey areas, aren't there, John, about sort of how, how clubs could make this work. I mean, with, with the example of Shrewsbury Town, they're, they're outside the top two divisions anyway. So, th- so these rules don't apply to them, and they can hopefully go ahead and get their section, you know, as long yeah, as they get it's this. Not, it's not even quite that simple, the fact they're outside of the, um, the top two divisions. Because you think about it, there are plenty of clubs in League 1 and League 2 uh, who have got all seater stadia. Yeah. You know, if, if you've played at three se- for three seasons at Tier 1 or two, Tier 2 level, since 1994, you have to go all theatre, and no matter how far down the, the pyramid you fall, I mean, Stockport County are playing, I think, at Tier 8, and actually Park is all theatre, because yeah. they, they committed the heinous crime 15, 20 years ago of playing in the championship for three years. Yeah. So it's not quite that straightforward. But yeah, there, there, there are grey areas in the law. I mean, the law does not say that any ground in the country has to be all theatre. Not one. It doesn't say it at all. 
the law gives the Secretary of State the power to impose such restrictions on certain grounds as he or she may wish to impose them on, as and when they, they may wish to impose them. So that the, the primary law does not say Anfield has to be all-seater. Um, in 1994, the Secretary of State of the day uh, said Anfield had to be all-seater. Now, the Secretary of State still has that power and could strike Anfield off the list. They could strike Old Trafford off the list. They could strike you know, every ground that's currently on that list off the list without a need for any change in primary legislation. You would, of course, need to persuade the Secretary of State, currently Karen Bradley, that that was the right thing to do. But in order to do it, she would not have to change the law per se. There's also, as you alluded to, the slightly grey area, that in the um, sort of edicts, the, the, the standing orders or seating orders that the Secretary of State issues, what is there said in there is that ground X must provide, in inverted commas, seated accommodation only. It doesn't say fans have got to sit down. It says the ground must provide seated accommodation only. Yeah. So you can argue a rail seat can be sat on. A rail seat is therefore seated accommodation. It's simply a different sort of seated accommodation to what we currently have in most stadia. You know, and you think about it also that even within Anfield, I guess, there are probably three or four different designs of stadium seat in use in the different stands. Yeah. You think of the padded ones for the VIPs and... and some of the older ones in the older parts of the ground and, and the general admission ones in, in the new main stand. I'm sure they're all different. You know, nothing specifies in law what design or style of seat somebody must put in. There are basic um, requirements about the width and the height and all the rest of it, and rail seats would comply with all of those. I mean, so it seems that just because a rail seat is metal and a bit uncomfortable perhaps to sit on for a long time on a cold day, but you could always have a nice cushion underneath your backside, and it seems that because it has a rail in front of it, and some people might believe that would cause a sightline obstruction, but it doesn't, that for those reasons, and for none other, the government suggests that actually a rail seat wouldn't qualify a seat of accommodation. And I find that daft. To me, if you can sit on the thing, it's a seat. And, and it might perhaps need the Premier League to, to lobby and make that point with government, say, actually, come on, guys, you're... You're, you're, you're being a bit silly here. You're, you're saying that something you can sit on isn't a seat. Surely it is, and therefore it's compliant with the law. John, thanks very much for joining us. Um, as ever, some great insight into the Safe Standing campaign there. And in the, in the second part of the show, we're going to be speaking to um, Glyn Price, who is the editor of the Blue and Amber fanzine. Uh, he's been involved in the campaign in Shrewsbury to get Shrewsbury to have a Safe Standing section. So he's going to be offering that up in the second half of the show, which is coming soon. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. I'm Gareth Roberts, and this is the second part of the show. Uh, continuing on the theme of Safe Standing, we're going to now be speaking to Glyn Price from the Blue and Amber fanzine yeah, that's a Shrewsbury fanzine and Shrewsbury this week have bid to become the first club to have a safe standing section in England so Glyn's going to tell us all about how that came about To give you some background we've got a, a supporters parliament um, who, who work alongside the club to bring forward certain things like we, we installed our historic badge a few years ago so I'm one of the people that's been sort of actively involved in the supporters parliament so we've had sort of meetings for the last few months now where we know discussions have been ongoing in the background and legal issues and, and safety issues and getting everybody on board to try and get this process that we're the first going on. So, yeah, I'd, I'd been aware of it, but unfortunately there were other football clubs around the country that were maybe going to try and beat us to the punch. So it was one of those things that we, we were trying to keep under our hat. So it's a bit of a relief for everybody really today that the news has come out and, and it's out there now and we can kind of try and make some more progress within the general public as well. So it's an important one for the Anfield app, this. I mean, we, we've very much taken a stance of support and safe stand and we believe it should happen at Anfield and that Liverpool should engage with fans on that. And, you know, we've, we've, we've pushed that message, really, of being up to Celtic Park myself. We made a video while we were up there and, and I wrote up a piece on, on my experience at Celtic Park. On, on the engaging with fans and listening to what match-going fans say, I think it's really interesting, Glenn, that you talk about the fans' parliament there. And can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that works? It, it, I mean, to be fair, Shrewsbury Town, we've had our ups and downs with engaging with a football club, probably like most most fans do, I suppose. Um, and I think it was maybe five or six years ago we decided to make it maybe a little bit more formal and, and maybe put the onus back on the fans driving things forward. And this is one thing I would say about this safe standing project is this has been driven by our fans. You know, we found out about the idea. We've spoken to the FSA, FS, the Football Sports Association, by you know, safe standing, and took this to the football club and said, "We'll drive this forward. We'll raise all the money. We'll, we'll take this forward so it's no no cost benefit to the." Football 
football club. So yeah, this is what our sports parliament is able to do, and, and we can only do that when you've got you know the people at the very top who are willing to engage with you. And we've got a very good CEO in Brian Cardwell who's completely bought into the idea, the border behind it, and and having a sports parliament where we can bring not just big issues like this, and this is a national global thing, but you know even smaller issues that we have at our football club, we're able to bring those to them and get more speedy responses maybe than these detached foreign owners that maybe don't want to engage so much. So I suppose we must we must count ourselves very lucky in that circumstance about about everything that we do as a sports parliament. So yeah, I know there are a few other ones around the country. Wolverhampton have got one. I think there might be a few others, but um, yeah, they're certainly worth looking at. But it, it's it's difficult to get off the ground, and, and yeah, there's a lot of hard work goes on behind the scenes. I mean, it makes you feel prouder, really, of the club, doesn't it, Glenn? You know, that you're involved with it, that you feel you can influence its decisions, that you're actively involved in the club. And, you know, while Celtic and, and Shrewsbury Town are obviously very different clubs in terms of size and stature and the league they play in and everything else, I think what's what's very similar here is that, you know, there's been true engagement between fans and the club. There's been an actual conversation that the club, at the very top level, have listened to and said, well, OK, we'll consider this we'll, and we'll look into making it happen but it's been very much the fans that have driven that I mean when I went up to Celtic it was clear that you know the fans had pushed for this particularly the lads around the green brigade who felt that you know they needed to do something to bring atmosphere back into the ground they're now rightly proud of what they've achieved up there and off that end and and Shrewsbury now I, I guess is a kind of feeling proud as well because you know essentially you could be the first club in England to have a safe standing section albeit on a much smaller scale so there's talk of a sort of 500 person section if you like but also I think what's interesting is the idea that fans are actually looking to pay for them pay for this themselves aren't they Glenn I mean there's, there's talk of crowdfunding and around £75,000 yeah, so there's a, there's a few things really about the Celtic issue. We're, we're following their model, um, so we've obviously been up to look at it. The, the people from the football club have been up to look at it, and you know there are certain restrictions that they have, have applied to them that we'll have to have applied starting off, because obviously we're the first club to do that sort of thing. So there's some things that are going to make it more trickier than it. You know, it'll be season ticket holders only, for example, because we can't just let anyone rock up there. So yeah, the Celtic model's given us the first in, um, and, and I guess that well, I can't remember what the next thing you, you were going to say then was, but the, there's, there's obviously a precedent been set, um, and, and now it's a case of us jumping through the same hoops and there's a lot a lot to do in terms of the fundraising that was the other thing you mentioned yeah the, the principle is that, that the fundraising will be done by the fans but we're pretty confident it won't just be Shrewsbury Town fans that will contribute to it like you've, you've got me on here and like you've just intimated there are fans across the country who are really behind safe standing um, and we can maybe talk about the issues with that in a minute but you know we, we believe that we'll get a lot of contributions from around the country and even around the world of people that would like to see this this safer version of terracing come back and and for us it's about our club as well you know Celtic have their own reasons for introducing it the fans brought it forward you've got to remember we've only been in our new stadium for 10 years um and most of us were used to standing on a terrace at the, uh, the old gay meadow you know I was you know I spent all my my childhood growing up on a terrace and I, I certainly missed it when when we sort of were forced to sit down in North Seat Stadium now have its benefits as well but we certainly lost a lot of fans who stopped coming because of terracing and so there's there's part of the reason is yes it's safer uh, and lots of other reasons at our football club but mainly it, it might be quite good to get some of our fans back that we lost and it's certainly going to help the atmosphere because it can be a little bit turgid in an all seat stadium at our level you know I know it's not quite the same at Anfield you know it's a bit better but you know all-seater stadiums, it is tricky to get an atmosphere going. So there's so many benefits um, for us here. And even the company that make these rail seats, they're based in Shrewsbury. They're literally just down the road. So it's even a local sort of, you know, pride thing about two local businesses getting together to work on a fantastic project. I think what's important to, to emphasise, Glyn, here, and, and, and we always do do this when we're having a conversation around safe standing around the rail seating section, is that what actually this will do is is improve the experience for fans but also make the situation safer because what you've got at the moment and I'm sure it's the same at your club Glenn is that you've got fans who stand up for 90 minutes they want to sing they want to shout they want to get behind the team and what, what a safe standing section is doing is actually taking a situation that's unsafe and making it safe it's making accidents less likely to happen isn't it? Yeah, 100%. That's that's exactly what we've been talking about today to people in, in the press, and that's the message we're getting out there. We do have a, a, a section of our sort of, it's called Block 18 and 19. They're the nearest to the away fans, so it kind of generates an atmosphere because they're close to the away fans. If any bother turning up, it is League One. But, um, um, yeah, so hopefully a lot of them will, you know, look to move over to this new standing area and, and you won't have the, the problems of people falling over seats and, and people packing themselves in too tightly. You know, it's going to have to be quite monitored during the first few months of it, of it working, maybe later this season. But, yeah, it's definitely a safer approach. And, and safe standing's a thing that you, you're obviously be aware of. It is it's grown and grown and grown and people are becoming more knowledgeable about the the, the 
the positives of it. Um, and our fan base are quite knowledgeable, but I think today has been a sort of learning exercise for some people because it has come out of the blue for a lot of our fan base. And, you know, it's been fielding questions from not just our fan base, but even national reporters in, in the press as well. So it's been good to to, to sort of lead the way. And it's, it's funny because when was Shrewsbury Town ever the pioneers of anything in football or, or, or anything? When was Shropshire the pioneers? Probably hasn't been since like, you know, the Industrial Revolution in Ironbridge. So it's quite nice for us to be front and centre of a, of a huge campaign and, and being able to, to bring it forward. And one of the other things about this project that you might be interested in is the money that we're raising if we exceed that goal, that money's going to go back to the football um, associate, the football federation for fans, I can't remember what's called now. And they will use, yeah, there you go. Sorry. I've got, and, and that money that is extra will go to them. And then they can invest that money in trying to help other clubs then sort of following our lead and maybe get rail safe, rail seating, safe standing in other grounds. So it could be that, yeah, we get hours implemented, but it's also the catalyst for maybe giving safe standing another bite of the cherry at other football clubs. So it'd be great to be involved in, in sort of helping other clubs as well, if that's the way it goes. It's, it's worth saying as well, Glenn, that, you know, Shrewsbury have got the advantage really, if that's the right word, of, of being in League One and therefore not sort of slaves to the legislation which is in place which means that you know clubs in the top two divisions in England have to be all seater stadium and that that's allowing sort of Shrewsbury to, to to get this hopefully get this safe standing section but I just wonder what happens if you know things don't move at the pace that we want them to with safe standing and that this legislation sort of stays in place I mean what happens if Shrewsbury get into the championship so because all of a sudden you will be you know needing to meet those rules and that you know there is some talk about there's perhaps wriggle room with this legislation and perhaps that you know when the seats are turned into seats when 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 you use the key and turn them down that that's actually therefore a seat but there is of course the possibility that you know the, the old the old law could be could be applied really and that all of a sudden you know that that Shrewsby aren't meeting standards in the championship so what what, what are your thoughts around that yeah, so one of the things the fundraising uh, fund will also include is a contingency. So if, you know, we are in a situation where in three years' time that, you know, us getting our rail seating in, Celtic, and maybe maybe others that have joined the party by that point in time, if the football legislation hasn't changed by that point and we are forced, if we do get promoted to the championship, which could happen, we were there in the 80s, you know, we're a reasonably sized club, um, when you look at Burton, we might have to then put seats back in. And there's a contingency within the fundraising to allow us to have the funds to do that. It's obviously not as much as installing it in the first place because we retain our seats and it's just a case of doing the work to put them back in so there's been a lot of thought about the whys and the wherefores of it because we don't want to do this to hamstring our, ourselves and not be able to get promoted if it does happen so yeah but the, but the thought is and, and our football club and, and the people supporting us is that this can be one of the, the ways in which legislation changes um, and obviously we know politics and governments and especially football governance it's not exactly um you know, it's about as slow as a glacier, isn't it? Sometimes, but this can be this can be a prompting for it, and and you know, hopefully, we're sort of the first brick in that wall that sort of you know, first brick out of the wall really to to making sure that it can be implemented elsewhere. Yeah, it feels like there's a real momentum now around safe standing. I mean, it's not just this news around around Shrewsbury, which is fantastic, but also you know West Bra- West Brom in the last few days have have made it known that you know should we be able to do it in the Premier League at any point that they'd be willing to trial it after the Premier League you know put put that out there really to all the clubs. So you know that's another step in the right right direction as well. Um, what I wanted to ask you as well, Glenn, is whether you've got any insight into how far the club are down the road of knowing that they can definitely do this. And what I mean by that is, you know, again, looking at the Celtic experience, I know that they got so far and then there was concerns with with Glasgow City Council, you know, with various other authorities and bodies sort of chipping in with concerns. And they had to jump through quite a lot of hoops and get round, you know, get through quite a lot of red tape to make it happen. And when I was reading about Shrewsbury today in the Shropshire Star, you know, there was talk there of, you know, they've they've got to now submit something to the the council's safety um, advisors and, and they've got to speak to the National Sports Ground Authority and this is of course presuming that they're, they're able to raise the money but I mean are the club confident are the fans confident that they, if they raise that money they can make it happen and they can get through all this red tape um, you know, we wouldn't be, you know, there's two guys who have worked particularly hard on this who are sort of the chairman of our supporters um, parliament. And um, one thing I would just flag up if anyone's really interested in, in the detail of it is I'm recording a podcast tonight, which is the Salabcast. It's the Shrewsbury Town podcast. Um, and we're going to be talking to those guys tonight about a lot of the more uh, details that I might not be able to sort of give you the answers to on this. In terms of the, the hoops, yeah, we, we've got to reach a point where they're fairly confident they can jump through a lot of these hoops now. Otherwise, this would have, there would have been no point in launching this. But 
you know, councils can be tricky things sometimes. We've we've run up against a lot of problems with our local council sometimes to do with the football ground and 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 it's you know it's a heavily oh, I shouldn't be political, but it's been it, Shrewsbury's quite a conservative town, not in not in its politics, but just in in its general makeup. So maybe there might be issues there. Obviously, we've got the whole issue with the government that's not really sort of too stable at the moment, and so we have we've had to wait for that government to settle down and wait for a sports minister to get put in place because they've got to have a decision on it. So there's been a lot of little hurdles to jump over now and still lots of hurdles to go forward but i think one of the one of the key things about launching it today was to really show that there is that drive within our fan base in the local community and a national drive to enable some pressure to be put on decision makers so um yeah hopefully those decisions go our way and um you know we'll be looking at maybe installing this actually this season if everything goes okay we, we might be shifting people around mid-season but there's no point in hanging around people people want it if we get through those hoops then we might all a few of us might be standing up towards the end of this season yeah, Glenn, I really hope it happens for you there at Shrewsbury. And, you know, if it does and when it does, I'd love to come down and, and give it a go and stand there myself and take in a match at some point. Um, and, and if you are doing a podcast there on, on Safe Stand, then please do send it over. We'll uh, we'll give it a tweet out from the Anfield wrap. And so for anyone listening, that should have happened by now. And if you want to look back on our Twitter feed, you'll be able to find Glenn's. Glyn's podcast get more in depth about what you know what they're doing at Shrewsbury and how they're going to go about it as well. And, and, and well done also really to to Shrewsbury fans as a set of fans for sort of making this happen and putting it at the top of the media agenda again really as well because I think that benefits everyone in the country who, who would like to see safe standing. I mean I got up, got up this morning and put the radio on and Five Live were talking about it as one of the top stories there. You know you mentioned yourself that national journalists are taking an interest. Uh, the BBC as well. Have, I've done something on it today. So, again, it's sort of reinforcing the message and reinforcing the right message. And I think from a Liverpool perspective as well, it does feel like there's some learning going on out there now nationally because, you know, I've heard journalists talk about it in the past and they'll say things like, well, what about Hills? But, uh, and then everyone sort of recoils a little bit. And, you know, while we've got to be sensitive about Hillsborough and, and to the Hillsborough families and Hillsborough survivors, I think it's worth saying that, you know, yet again, that the, the truth is out there now, the facts are out there, they're well established, people can read up on them all they want in the you know, the Hillsborough Independent Panel report in what come out in the inquests you know, all the information's all over the internet and, and will be forever more now and, and what was established was standing did not cause Hillsborough you know, the 96 that died were not victims of just merely standing at a football match and so that that should not stop standing happening again what we want is people to be safe at grounds this is a system that can provide safety at football grounds yeah, and, and I think you're right to have flagged up what you flagged up before. I completely agree with what you said. Is that if anything, us installing this in our football ground for anyone that's interested in safety, you know, our safety officers, safety officers from all the country will tell you that what we're about to implement is safer than the situation we have now with people standing up in a ground when they shouldn't be standing up. But you know, it happens. It's one of those things in football that happens. And um, yeah, and, and that's the, that's the way of it, really. And I, and I think you know, it, it's just it's not often you you know, as a, as a fan of Liverpool Football Club, you're proud of your your team for winning European Championships and winning championships and even some of the things off the field you do as, as a smaller club you don't have that opportunity to be too proud about your football club you'll win you'll win a league or get promoted and that's what football's all about but things like this today make you very proud of your football club and and, and i'll just say on, on your podcast it, not just the guys that worked on it from the fan side of it but the people at our football club that have enabled us to to work with us it, it's it's a very fantastic thing and, and it's something to be very proud of today Thanks very much to Glyn Price there from the Blue and Amber fanzine. Uh, lots more on Safe Standing on theanfieldrap.com. Uh, we've also done various videos. If you have a look at our YouTube channel, I, I went up to Celtic and experienced the Safe Standing section for myself. Uh, did a bit of a video diary of the day. So, so check it out because it, it really shows you how that Safe Standing section works. Uh, join us again after the break on Radio City Talk. Uh, in part three, Neil Atkinson will be speaking to Stephen Armstrong. I'm giving him his full name there from the United We Stand fanzine. Um, we thought it'd be interesting over a series of weeks, we're going to speak to some of our rivals, see what they're doing this summer, step outside the Liverpool bubble for a little bit. So Steve's going to be telling us what's happening at Old Trafford and whether their fans are fuming about transfers as well. Welcome back to the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. I'm Gareth Roberts. Uh, in the final part, as promised, uh, Neil Atkinson is going to be speaking to Steve Armstrong from United We Stand. See how Man United summer's been. See whether their fans are fuming about transfers. As ever, a joy to be joined by Steve Armstrong from United We Stand. Here he is. And Steve, summer's over. I'm back on the phone to you. You've just got a cop for it. Yeah, summer's over. It's raining in Manchester. Glastonbury's finished. You're on the case. 
and people are already phoning me up or trying to get on the coach to swan away. So, uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's definitely over and done with, yeah. It is, it is. You're going to have to accept it. And it's good that people already look for, looking forward to Swansea. You can't argue with that, uh, that that's got people's excitement. Because, uh, you know, I keep going through all this sort of stuff about United. I think we're all in a funny position this season. Certainly those who finished top four and United also qualifying for the Champions League, which is that these are the, you know, the five of the top 10, 12 clubs in Europe. As per the money's concerned, as per the, 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 the reputation is concerned, certainly the recent reputation will obviously put Manchester City foot to one side for a second as per all of that's concerned but we're not quite able to throw our weight around in the manner of Manchester of, uh, of, of Real Madrid of Barcelona of Bayern Munich because there isn't that collective feeling of well you'll always definitely be in the Champions League yeah absolutely I think what's interesting in the Premier League now is you were pretty much five um, for a number of years and like that sort of top four now is 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 a top six and you occasionally get the, the sort of rogue element of somebody who just has an out of ordinary season um, as per Leicester. So it, it's a bigger it's a bigger pool from which to pick you four from, and as a result of that, it's a bigger pool from which to pick you one from um, in terms of who wins it. So I think that changes some of the dynamics of it, and I think it makes the you know obviously when you go into sort of Barcelona. Real Madrid, Bayern Munich, and Germany—you're pretty much a shoe in to never not ever not play in the Champions League again. So it's certainly a safer bet. Um, and then obviously what you get here is, is the sort of haggling over—you know—you're um, not just going to one big club who can pay more than anybody else. Pretty much now, most people do have the wages firepower. Um, so yeah, it does it does change things around a little bit. And as and as as it's panning out now, there's there's always somebody who wants to be champions and they and somebody with champions who sort of sits there trying to protect themselves and then there's more people snapping away at the heels this year I think um, because I think the other thing that's also in there I think it's restricted the ability to maybe sign from within your own market United for quite a long period of time used to pick up the likes of Michael Carrick from other clubs because yeah. it was seen as a natural step up whereas now you know I would argue that historically it's a bigger move to go from Tottenham to United but in terms of the present you know there's just a stronger case for staying at Spurs with the manager, the ground, you know, recent form and recent seasons, um, as there is from going to oh, to a United or to a Liverpool. So, I think yeah, it's changed the it's changed the way things work, and I think what that does, it brings the skill of the manager right back to the forefront, doesn't it? It does, and it it, it, it turns team building into a thing, and there's you know, there's a ton of. I think we're all going to have our own sort of runners and riders come the start of next season, not just because of the clubs we support, but also, you know, weighing up who does what well and who, who historically has done what well. But the the Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho, um, I had to set, name him there, Steve, it's a journalistic thing, as though the people listening wouldn't know. Uh, he he finds himself, you know, historically, he's fantastic at second season by, and you look at it, both of his stints at Chelsea, yes, they won the league season one, but they built on it season two. You look at the, the, the second stint at Chelsea when he quite clearly just looked at what he needed and went out and got it. Uh, there's there's a precedent for it at Real Madrid. He does the same thing at Inter Milan. That he's very very good indeed at spending 12 months working with a squad and then very much going. These are the players I don't want, and th- this is the sort of player I do want. Yeah, absolutely. I think he's the thing that's been obvious last year. He didn't put it right, um, but it's pretty clear who he likes at the club existing at the minute, and I think that's always. Um, to me, the important precursor to what you do then, because, you know, if you end up trying to buy something that you like elsewhere, but then you find it just gets in the way of something already there, I think that ultimately causes you hassle. And I think what he did particularly well last year, he didn't put himself under massive um, title or Champions League pressure. Um, I think he went about it in a really pragmatic way. And I think the club is set up to do that. Anyway, I've said this to you a number of times before. United wanted done right um, before they wanted done well. Um, and the fans are quite happy to say, take your time if that's what's needed. Um, they're not instant success cravers. Um, so I think he had the... Once he realised that that was actually true, um, I think he got his head around it and it probably took him until the new year. Um, so I think he's in a good place with that. I think he's done a lot of the, this is what I need. And I think that's probably allowed him to make better decisions with who he's put on the shopping list for the chairman or the CEO to go and get. Um, and I expect it will be maybe not star names to the levels that Manchester United have been used to over the over the years. I think it will be 
what's the best fit for the job that I can get. Um, you know, we've signed a brilliant defender from Benfica, but you know, you know, any United fan who can claim they know of him or knew much about him is obviously lying. Mourinho has just done his done his own work and said, right, I think he, he's exactly what we need. Um, and you know, even when you're linking it, you know, obviously there's a lot of links to people like Matic. You know, it's not a fancy name. There's a big argument that it's a lot of money if it does come off um, for someone of that age. But Mourinho, while he's interested in it, he's saying, oh, well, I need to plug this gap with this type of player because it's what we need. So I think you'd expect a lot of that. And I think it's further evidence that, you know, ultimately United do have a lot of strength in the squad already. It's just a case of finding some of the things that help unlock that. And, you know, I'm not saying Matic will come because I've got no inside or would, it, would ever have inside knowledge of that. But I can understand why he would want somebody like that um, to free up Pogba and unlock Pogba for what he, he can become and what he will need to be. So it's just typical Mourinho. We will go about it by picking what he thinks is right to do the job that's there. Um, and I don't think it will be necessarily massive splashing of cash. Um, there will be a lot of money spent, I'm sure of that, but none of it will be wasted and it, and it will all be geared to a plan that he'll have. Um, so, yeah, it, it'll be typical Mourinho. Um, but I think, as I said, we're taking a lot of credit, uh, sorry, a lot of, a lot of heart from the fact here and supporters that he had a real good look at last season um, and he gave a lot of people a lot of time to prove themselves, um, you know, and I think that's definitely bodes well for us. It's, it's almost taken it area by area. He's bought the defender, but the, for me, the interesting part of midfield, you, you saw at times last season what Carrick could do, but Carrick's leaving the club. You saw at times what you know what he could get from Herrera, who I thought was, was one of United's outstanding players. And you can also see the quality of Pogba, I think. A lot of people don't, and the price tag is always going to be an issue for him. But you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Pogba this season or the season coming or the season after turns in a, a, a stellar sort of 15 goal, 15 assist season, and everyone's suddenly raving about him again because the quality is there. So it is, you know, you mentioned Matic, but also you know he's looking at the, the lad from Monaco, Fabinho. But it's it's the yeah. idea, isn't it? Not just it isn't just the name, it isn't just the profile. It's the idea of no, no, no. This is this is the problem that I see, and this is how I want to solve it. Yeah, and that's but, that, but that's what he's doing. I think when you look at what he built that first Chelsea team on, um, as in the second sort, of, you know, what he added to what was already there. I mean, you know, I think most people admit that Ranieri had already built a fairly decent side and a decent squad there. Uh, Mourinho real brought the, you know, the sort of workman like the discipline, the strength, the physical part of it, and those are the kind of players that he wants. You know, and you look at. You know, Drogba is the kind of forward, for example. You know, the, the likes of McAllen is really important. Carvalho was really important. You know, he likes to get players in there who do the carrying, um, yeah. allow us the classier sorts to bring, to to bring the real real flow out of their game and the real talent to the forefront and I think he's probably looked at Pogba knowing, oh God, I've got, abs- I've got one of the best players on the planet here. Um, and I need to find somebody here who's going to make it so that he can just roam around the pitch and do what he likes. That's why, the, for me, the Perisic link is the one that's almost the most interesting. Is this that you know Perisic is? I've seen Perisic and I like him as a player, but he's very much a, you know he's a he's a Ray Kennedy style sort of wide player, and that he's he, he's not going to go past three and put it in the top corner for you. But he works very very hard mm. indeed. He's got a physical presence. He ghosts around the pitch to a certain extent, and I just sort of wonder on that is that if that is is an example of seeing the direction of travel here for Mourinho, which is you know almost like as under Benitez, Liverpool had a Dirk out on a flank doing a hell of a lot of work but what that meant was Gerard was able to play with an unbelievable amount of freedom and I sort of wonder yeah. if that's the, you know if this is the direction of travel here looking at next season if the idea is what have I got to do to completely unlock Pogba let's just get that sorted mm-hmm. and work work from that basis and back rather than try to sort of completely build something unique because you know the one thing he is is constantly sort of problem solving pragmatic not necessarily playing great football but not necessarily playing defensive football just working out the best football for his team yeah, I, I, we had we had a conversation early doors in this um, sort of round of Mourinho. It might have been before he'd even physically had a game of football. but And we talked about, obviously, this style of play, which was just a bit of an easy dig for people outside of United to have a go at. But some of the best football I've watched have been sides that Mourinho has, has, uh, has had. He, he's very, very capable of getting sides to do whatever he wants. And I think one of the things I said to you last year, 
I was actually, when, I, when everyone was foaming at the mouth about how negative they were at Anfield, I was buzzing me because sometimes Ferguson didn't have a second, he didn't really have a plan B, he was just throw more kitchen sinks if the first one didn't land. Um, and it was great to watch, but sometimes it can end up in absolute carnage. And that's why often we got found out in big games, particularly at Europe, where I think, you know, ultimately we, we, we got close in Europe and won it a couple of times in the first. But there's an argument to say that with that level of dominance, United could have won many, many more. Um, and I think what Mourinho brings to you is, is the ability to either be, you know, swashbuckling and brilliant, or the ability to go and absolutely wreak a place out and get a result you need. And I'm really excited about the fact that he is clever enough as a manager with the right tools and resources to be able to just plug certain squads and players and stars play into certain games and certain fixtures and he will surround himself by people who um people who can do that and um you know one thing that um you know he he very much likes is he likes intelligent players who can go make differences to games um you know and that's something that you know this is why the michael characters are very very good this is why certain players within that side you, can, you often see you he calls over to the touchline to get messages out or to get tactical things and sometimes it isn't the captain it's basically who does he think is the smartest people out there and you know you bring ray kennedy into that way i mean you know when me and mike nevin are talking about how brilliant the 1985 semi-finals were um we often find some time to talk about ray kennedy because he was in a brilliant Liverpool team, um, for me, one of the most important cogs within that. And you've just nailed it for me. That's exactly the kind of player that you know, you're looking for. Um, someone who is flexible, but ultimately someone who's work rate, um, does all the dirty work, and that allows some of the more... You know, the, I guess the the flair, stroke, finesse players to go and go and express themselves more. And I think it's fair to say last year that Pogba certainly didn't get the chance to express that as much as we'd have liked him to do. You could even say some of Herrera's best work last year. Someone who I see as an attacking for uh, an attacking midfielder and a creative midfielder. Some of his best work was in tackling and tracking back. Yeah, it's great, but it doesn't, you know, and that's also one of the reasons why I ended up being one of our most booked players last season. Um, that makes you know, a massive slide, Steve. Which is fine, to, by the way. Get, <laughs> he managed to get booked more times than Fellaini in less games. That takes some doing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. I, uh, I, I, I I agree with you. I think the Ray Kennedy um, analogy is a brilliant one. I think Mourinho is likely to surround himself by, by people who can bring some of that vision to life. Um, but I do think that, sort of joking apart on some of this stuff, as much as last season was a bit of a freebie for him, um, and he got away, we, we got he got away with it in the league because he was playing better football than Van Gaal. And we then got away with when the league went a bit wrong by the fact that we'd already registered the League Cup win and already managed to get into the business end of a European of a European tournament. He did get away with it. So um I think next season he's gonna be a lot less forgiving on the on the football front and also where we are in that league. But I don't think Manchester United fans are gonna be losing any sleep if they don't win the title. But being competitive in the title race is important. And I think he knows that. I think he understands that. And he'll surround himself by a squad um, of existing and new players who are um, who are going to be able to do that. Because, you know, me and you were talked about since, you know, since we spoke around the time that Ferguson was moving and we talked about Moyes transitioning, we're still four or five seasons on into another season of potential transition here. And we can't have another one of them. Um, but I do think that the the setup in terms of he's got his head around what's going on at the squad now and what he needs to bring in, I'm, I'm hugely encouraged by. Um, again, it's always going to be governed by, you know, that Arsenal are going to react badly to not being in the, in the Champions League. So you'd expect them to throw finally some money at a squad. Liverpool are in a position where I think Klopp is in a position now where he probably needs to demonstrate, you know, he's got everybody on board, everybody's loving his enthusiasm and stuff, but, you know, he's still not won anything. So you'd expect him to want to step up. Um, and then Tottenham look like they need to sort of step up another gear. Obviously, you've got Chelsea sat up there and you know that Guardiola's not going to tolerate another season like that. I see. So you've got four or five, maybe six teams even who are all probably going to throw everything they've got. Um, and that will probably make it for a very, very competitive league next year, which always back then down to me becomes about well, who, manages the, who manages it best. Because um, I think you're going to probably have six teams that you could throw a blanket over and say, there's a, you know, they're all fairly close. You could bundle them all up 
to me, what sets them apart is, and it, and it was often the case with Ferguson, um, you know, United won 13 titles in that period of time because he was the best manager in 13 of those title winning seasons. You could probably say he had the best team um, or the best squad in maybe only six of them. Um, and I think next season he's going to come down to management. Um, I'm glad Mourinho's at United. You'll be you've got Klopp. City, you'll be glad that they've got um, uh, Guardiola. <laughs> Chelsea will be glad they've got, you know what I mean? So it's going to be, for once, probably, I might even enjoy the football side of it as opposed to just the dossing about. The, well, just on that quick, the other thing I think that that's massive because I, I think it helped uh, Mourinho and United last season was Chelsea being sort of over the hill and far away. And I think that helped. I think that hindered Liverpool, but I think it helped uh, Manchester United because it gave everyone the idea of, well, we can just relax here because, you know, we've got the we, we've got this, these, these two cups that we're going for. And indeed, you can throw the mm. FA Cup in there as well. And it's not Van Gaal's football. It's not Moises' football. Uh, and I think that gave a certain freedom. I, I think this season, you're right to say that people will not relax if there isn't a genuine sort of sense of competitiveness, not just at Manchester United as well. And I, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, I think we've had a conversation about this before. One of the things that well, Ferguson was brilliant at um, was losing well. And, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of... It, it, we, that top six plays each other. Uh, you know, everyone, everyone plays each other sort of 10 times across the course of the season. Well, that's 38 games. Yeah. So how yeah. well people recover from setbacks. Both, and I think both football yeah. clubs internally, externally, the idea of, you know, a side can start badly. Chelsea started badly. I think how well everyone recovers to setbacks is going to be massive next season. No, I agree. I think, I think just back... I mean, it's a great point. Just back to the piece around Chelsea helping... The United thing. I think it helped from a supporter and the weight of expectation. Exactly. Yeah. Bringing a bit, bit, bringing a bit of psychology into it. I don't think it helped Mourinho in any way, shape, or form. Because no, no, I think no. he was sitting there thinking that, oh my God, you know, I've left them behind, um, and now look at them flourishing without me. I just think that heaps pressure right. And if you look at his whole demeanour from that sort of. October through January, you know, it was pretty gloomy, wasn't it? You know, to the point where none of us were sure how he was going to see it through. So, so yeah, I think you could probably look at that both ways. I think your point about Ferguson, um, I, I think people always talk about managers about how, how much they win and how, how well do they buy in the transfer market. I think his genius was aside was he didn't buy well all the time, but he always sold well. Um, and I think he also, to your point, dealt with defeat and response to defeat within the squad, within the dressing room, and in and amongst, you know, he knew exactly how to pitch it, um, and that was his genius. And I think, again, it comes back down to your point about, you know, this is part of management, and it's that type of management that would um, that, that, that will win the league. If you put Alec Ferguson into any of the top six next season as their manager, they would win that title with whatever squad they've got. And I think it does boil down to that. And I think this is where the Klopp's, the Conte's, the, the Mourinho's, the Guardiola's, Pochettino, and, you know, even Wenger's still in there. Um, you know, they've kind of now got... This isn't so much going to be Manchester United v Liverpool. A lot of it sometimes will be... Klopp v Mourinho or Mourinho v Guardiola or Conte versus Wenger. It'll be a lot of management styles and a lot of management decisions that win games next season. I think that's what makes that's that's what's going to make it quite fascinating. Um, more often than not, Ferguson only ever really had to sort of see off one individual or one channel, one challenger. Sometimes two, but more often than not, only one. Um, I think you've probably got. You know, not only six very, very good men. There's an argument to say you've got six of maybe the top ten coaches in world football in the Premier League now, um, and that's what's going to make it really, really fascinating. But, but yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. I do think that's going to be a big, big factor in there in how it pans out. Thanks a lot to Steve there. Uh, interesting to find out what's happening at some of our rivals. We'll be doing more of those. Neil will be speaking to more fans from more clubs to find out what they've been doing this summer and how they're all feeling about it. So join us again on Radio City Talk. On the Anfield Rap will be back 6.30 next Friday. In the meantime, please do check out theanfieldrap.com. Loads of podcasts on there, loads of writing, loads of stuff about Liverpool. Footy never stops and neither does the Anfield Rap. Sports Social Podcast Network.